Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to our final entry celebrating one of the great action-adventure sagas, as well as our 200th episode. I'm Patch, one of your hosts, and with me is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello! Glad to be doing this final installment. Not because I'm glad it's over, but it's going to be fun. It's nice to have a completion, right? Yes, the completionist in me agrees with that. (laughs) If you're wondering why we are covering this movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, or why there is a decimal point and another number after the 200, go ahead and check out the beginning of episode 200.1 for some more information. Meanwhile, we will be here spoiling this movie with some more great conversation. So here we go. This is your spoiler warning officially, and we will get started with one-word takeaways. Aaron, do you have a one-word takeaway? Because based on the notes, it doesn't appear that you do. Oh, so I'm reduced to only what I put in the notes now? Is that is it lazy? Is that your one word takeaway? Oh, or is it invisible? Oh, man. Snap. Is it? <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's forgetful. Um, no. <laughs> My one word takeaway is pinnacle. I'm about to say something, Patrick, and it's something that I can't take back because it will forever be out there in the world in audio form. But okay. here it is. I, Aaron White believe that The Last Crusade is the best Indiana Jones film. I don't make this proclamation lightly. I've seen all of these films more times than I can count, and especially the first one. But I think now, having gone through the first two in sequence, uh, and so in-depth already as we have, knowing what we're about to talk about now, that Crusade for me represents a refinement of everything Spielberg has done with the character in the first two films. It is the best of all elements, just like Toy Story 3 is for that series. It has the best opening. It has the best collection of adventure and fight scenes, the best girl, the best personal relationship, the best humor, and the best climax for me. I'll go into specifics as we chat, of course, but the bottom line is that I truly now see this film as the pinnacle of the character, and frankly, the pinnacle of the genre as a whole. Now, if we only had Indy's theme song to just play me off the stage. Is there a stage here? I don't know where the stage is now. (laughs) It's a virtual stage. People listening are imagining me on a stage right now as I'm speaking. It's like I'm giving my Oscar acceptance. Ah, That's that's what people listening see. So So I need... so the indie theme music is not pushing you dun, off the stage. Dun, it's it, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> definitely slowed down. Definitely. Okay. Anyway. And those that love Raiders are basically like speeding it up so we can go to commercial. Is that what that is? Yeah. I'm probably going to make some enemies here, you know, and it is fine. That's okay. It's not, I mean, we're talking a Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049 situation where it's almost impossible for me to split them, but the Raiders' love is slightly more nostalgic when compared to the structure of this film. It's, it, this film is better. So there you have it. I, I don't think I could disagree with you. My word is mature, and I picked that for almost the exact same reasons that you did. 
I believe that what Steven Spielberg does with this movie is fixes the challenges that he had in Raiders and Doom, and he refines it. He gives us everything that we wanted from both without some of the hiccups that we may have pointed out in the first two movies. And I think they're all great. I don't think that there's a, a, a large deviation between the three movies. Although, I mean, we've had the conversation about Doom and how it's kind of significantly more different than the other two. But I feel like if you look at The Last Crusade, you're getting so much of what made the first two so wonderful in a package that feels like it's hitting on all cylinders. And you're right. We're getting the best of everything. It's like an all-star game, an all-star team of Indiana Jones characters and plot and music. Um, it has just the right amount of callback to previous entries that doesn't feel overly done. It feels like it's a progression of Indy's character. He feels consistent with the other two movies. It feels like, as we mentioned at the beginning of the Raiders episode, it could be its own entry without necessarily having been part of these other two, but at the same time, it's strengthened by the other two. So I think Spielberg really, really hits it perfectly with this one. And I don't think I could disagree that Last Crusade is probably my favorite of the three as well. Something that is consistent between these three movies is great opening action set pieces. And this one is definitely no different, except for the fact that it really functions as an origin story for Indiana Jones, uh, among many other things. We get to see how Indy's fear of snakes originates, how he gets the fedora, the whip, and the scar, something that I didn't know until maybe a, not this most recent entry, but um, an entry early in my adult life when I was watching this that, oh, they're making something that Harrison Ford actually has a part of his character, that, that, that chin scar. These artifacts, I guess, if you will, these symbols, these things that we've kind of grown to love, um, how do they help round Indiana Jones out as a character? And how do they accentuate another great action set piece for uh, the opening of the movie? Well, there's no surprise here that I love this one the best because I've already said it. Um, I think that the Raiders opening, and I used this word when we talked about it, is iconic. And it is so memorable and so special because it is an introduction to a character. What is awesome about the use of young Indy here, and it is a brilliant idea, is that it is essentially reintroducing the character in a same iconic way. It's a different character, but it's the same character. <sighs> it's so cool. And River Phoenix is like perfect as far as look and tone, demeanor, everything about the way that he carries himself for that short period of time feels just like a young Harrison Ford. And... I'm still actually mad at myself for not ever watching that Young Indy series, the Chronicles of Young Indianapolis, Young Indianapolis, Young Indiana Jones. I know it's not River <laughs> Phoenix. Um, I also found out it is streaming on Amazon Prime right now, and that all the episodes are an hour and a half long. I was going to watch well, one, but yeah. So let me let me give a little backstory because okay. when when we started covering these, I discovered that as well because at some point I'd like to go back and revisit it. What had happened was 
it was repackaged after it was distributed on television as long, like a long miniseries. So all the episodes that were originally airing, they did a kind of an early, um, an early indie portion and then like a Harrison Ford section and then an older Indiana Jones. And those were all pieced together and they were reworked as like chapters of the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. So they were, you're getting all the episodes. They're just kind of lumped together in different chapters as opposed to specific episodes. Knowing what you know of my personal affection for the character in the genre, is it something I would enjoy or is it too far off of what I love to like still? It's well, funny. I haven't I haven't seen it yet, so oh, it's okay. it's one that it's it's on my docket to start watching at some point because okay. obviously, but there's so much TV out there that and other stuff to watch. Uh, plus, with when we're recording this during award season, I know that I enjoy watching things uh, alongside you, and so knowing that you're not going to watch this anytime soon, I haven't had a chance to. All that being said, I think what I remember about the series, the little bit that I they do, I feel like it's right up your alley in terms of being a serialized action adventure uh, series. I would think so. And listeners, if you have seen the Chronicles of Young Indiana Jones, I believe is what it's called. The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Dadgummit, that was close. Uh, feel free to chime in. Comment on the posts on social media for this episode or just find us at me on Twitter or something and tell me what you thought of it. But anyway, back to the opening, Patrick. I love everything about it. And there was one moment where I found it's interesting because I don't think I would have, this would have stuck out had we not just been talking about Temple of Doom recently. But Indy says when he meets, and I don't even know if the villain slash Tomb Raider, whatever we want to call him, has a name. When he first comes upon them stealing the Cross of Coronado, he says, this artifact belongs in a museum. And it made me wonder, like, is that an inconsistency now with the start of Temple of Doom? Because he starts off Temple of Doom with not really giving us a character that adheres to the idea that artifacts belong in museums. He kind of comes to that realization at the end of that film. And so for him to say it this early seems a little strange. And then I thought to myself, or did he start that way and then... When this, and I'm going to keep calling him villain for lack of a better term, says to him that it's not about that and kind of gives him his own philosophy, does that change the way that Indiana has thought about this over the years? I just, I found that very interesting. I have more to say, but I wanted to throw that out there first. It's a, it's an interesting thought. I don't know that Spielberg was necessarily thinking about the consistency of Indy as a character and a through line of, giving him an arc between these three because when we watch Raiders and then we see that Doom is actually a prequel, it's it's cool to see how if you were to watch Doom and then watch Raiders, some of that growth happens. But I think this is where the fun of being able to experience these movies independently comes in and where Spielberg is having fun with establishing who the character is. This may be why a lot of people don't like Doom is because one of the inconsistencies is that Indy's motivation is different. But of course, the argument could be made, well, he had these pure motives and then along the way, he kind of lost his way and decided to become a smuggler, like a Han Solo type character. 
And then eventually we get to Doom where he discovers that and refines it or rediscovers it for the last crusade or for Raiders or whatever it is. But I don't think it's much of a distraction for me. I think that more than anything, Spielberg is probably connecting the dots between Raiders and this movie. I don't necessarily think he's ignoring Temple of Doom, but in terms of consistency, in terms of tone, in terms of even down to the types of artifacts, I think Spielberg may, in hindsight, and, and Lucas as a, as a storyteller, may be thinking, hmm, Raiders and Crusade feel more consistent than anything in Doom, because Doom kind of feels a little off the wall. And that might be one thing where, um, in this case, you have an Indiana Jones character that has always cared about artifacts being in museums and that Doom is maybe where he went off the rails a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. I could buy it that way as well. Uh, to your point about the iconic imagery and these different things that we know Indiana Jones by, I really hate this scene with the snakes. It's probably the worst maybe three or four seconds of the entire saga for me because it's not him just standing around them. It's a person. I can't even, I, 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 I can't even think about it. Ugh, it's awful. It's so gross. But, like, it gives purpose to why he's scared of snakes. And what's awesome is that so much of this is just beautifully woven into this action set piece that it never feels like fan service. I guess it is fan service, but it feels natural to me. It doesn't feel called attention to, even though it is. I, I don't really know how to explain it in words, but I never – I get the wink and the nod from Spielberg, and I know what he's doing is giving me backstory, but it just – I've seen it done so many times heavy-handedly to where I feel like there's a tone of a scene – and then that tone drops, and we stop, and we're like, everybody look at this thing! Okay, back to that tone, and that never happens in the opening of this film. It is just one big adventure. He's discovering something. He's running away and stealing the cross, which you've seen him done so many times. He's shown right off the bat that he has no fear of snakes. I think that was a great touch, to be honest, to see him not be scared of snakes, and then what actually Make it, he becomes scared of them at, in that same, you know, same day essentially, and then the whole thing with the whip. I'm assuming that the scar happens when he whips the lion for the first time. Is that right? It cuts him. That's correct. Yeah. Him, right. And so the two of those things being tied together, I'd kind of forgotten about that. But you know, this whip that we see him choose to use at all times. The first time he discovers it, he pulls it off of a wall. No idea what to do with it, really. He's just trying to figure it out to save his own life. It's a really cool concept uh, for that to be something that goes forward in life with him. And then, of course, the Fedora Man, this quote-unquote villain, this man that was essentially hired by people to gain this artifact, which is what Indiana then becomes later on in his own life, this man with a very similar jacket and a similar, you know, the Fedora, um, it, it's cool because you see that, for me, Indiana Jones is a hero. He is someone that we look up to. We think he is a really neat guy. He looks cool, and he does all of these amazing things that we can't do, and we want to be like him. We want to pretend to be Indiana Jones in the backyard. This is the man that Indiana Jones 
grew up then pretending and wanting to be like as well, you know, to some extent, probably his dad uh, on some level as well. But from an adventure standpoint, clearly this is the motivation for a lot of the way that his personality begins to express itself over time. And I think that that's great. I think that him giving Indiana the philosophy, the you lost today, kid, but that doesn't mean you have to like it, is something we see in his life going forward. It's almost like a guiding principle for the way that he operates uh, in all of his adventures. It's great. It's fantastic. All the way up to the opening scene with his dad, I think it's brilliant to not show us Sean Connery, to give us his voice, let us know he's there. We don't get to see him. And his first act is this moment of patience, telling Indiana to, to, to exercise patience. You know, he says count 20 in Greek or something, you know. And it's really neat because the film had been getting or the series had been getting compared to James Bond constantly. And from what I understand, that was largely part of the decision in bringing Sean Connery on to play his dad was to just lean into what the audiences already believed, which was this connection between the way in which Indiana Jones carries himself and has these adventures. And why not bring in the bond to be his dad and make that even closer of a tie. So I think it's amazing. And and I love that it goes forward, flashes forward to him then stealing the cross for a second time, right? He's going. He's still thinking about it all these years later. Uh, he never has forgotten. He's always wanted to go back and get it, and ultimately he gets it, and he puts it in the museum. And there's terrible CGI when the boat blows up. It's everything this series is known for. I love it. I think one of the things that I've pulled from this is the fact that Indy always starts with an artifact that's really important to him, but... It either gets stolen or introduces a character that ends up leading him to another artifact. And that's something that I love about the consistency of the series is that we always know that Indy's going to be stealing something or trying to gain something. But that thing won't be the thing that he ends up trying to pursue the rest of the movie. It's like a setup, like a like a um, like a setup man or a, a an opening artifact act of some kind where he's not. He's just show the the Spielberg and company are showing us. Um, oh yeah, just just wanted to remind you that Indiana Jones is still awesome, and this is why. And the opening set piece is just equally consistent. I I want to go back to talking about River Phoenix. Um, I miss him as an actor. I think he was fantastic in this role. He, the mannerisms, in and of themselves, you could tell that he spent time studying Harrison Ford's facial expressions and the way in which he said things for instance there's a moment where he's running down uh with the cross and nobody's around and he says everybody's lost but me the way he delivers that line sounds like a young harrison ford saying it and i think that's fantastic the ability that an actor has to actually take on some of those mannerisms of his adult counterpart really sells the notion that he is a young indiana jones that he is someone who from the very beginning, is someone who's very confident in and of himself. Of the things that are brought to our attention, this origin story of artifacts, of, of weapons and whatnot, the fedora, I think, is probably the most iconic because it calls back to Raiders. And at least once in both the first two movies, he loses his hat or almost loses his hat. And it ends up coming back to him either through him grabbing it before coming 
out from under a a door that's coming down or from one of his best friends giving it to him in exchange for a New York Yankees hat. And even in this one, there's a moment later in the movie where his hat just manages to find itself, find its way back to him. And I think in a lot of ways, that fedora is the icon. It's the artifact on Indiana Jones that we will always remember. Beyond the leather jacket, beyond the whip, it is the thing that gave him permission to be who he was. And it was because of his relationship briefly with that smuggler, that that treasure hunter, maybe the pre-Nathan Drake, I guess. But when he says, you lost today, Kib, that doesn't mean you have to like it. As you mentioned before, when you see the the shot go from his head being down as a young Indiana Jones to being back up in the rain where he's being beaten up, that little grin on his face tells us that he's being reminded of the fact that, you know what, this this is really fun. This is who I am, and, and I'm excited about it. The fedora thing, I actually noted this time. In past viewings, I've actually found that cheesy and like really just kind of silly like oh come on this thing didn't just like blow back up there this viewing for some reason i was like yeah man of course this is his superpower in a way like this is what defines him like of course the universe is going to give him his hat back like the universe needs him and he needs his hat in order to achieve his goals he can't do it without it so whoosh there it is and i just for some reason man i was like gushing over that moment today i was just that's so great and normally i would think that is ridiculous um but i think spielberg knows i think you're right i think spielberg intentionally built this level of respect into that piece of clothing and this you know thing that audiences are going to connect with and care about just as much as he does because he cares about it so much and I thought it was awesome the way that we got that hat to come back to him, especially after the hilarity of that whole sequence with him going off the edge of the cliff. Speaking of hilarity, I noticed this time around that Last Crusade is not without an increased amount of comedy uh, from those action set pieces that you mentioned to the dialogue between the characters. There were times when I thought, is this intentional? This feels more like a comedy instead of an action adventure. And in some ways, depending on who you are, when you watch the other two movies, this could feel very inconsistent. But did that work for you in terms of your viewing or how did you respond to that? So for me, I thought that the humor in this was fantastic throughout. I have so many memories of the comedy bits in this film. And I think that, again, this is a refinement and sort of a perfection of learning what kind of humor to use when and what will pay off best in any given situation um, based on previous films that he had done. Because it all seems to work for me. The Dialogue between Indy and other characters is fantastic. The chase with the Brotherhood of the whatever the heck they're called, something sword. Crimson, not Crimson Sword. I don't remember. I have it written down. But 
those guys. There's some awesome dialogue there that goes on during that boat chase with El- with Elsa during the boat, where he says, are you crazy? Don't go between them. And she's like, go between them? Are you crazy? And I think that one of the defining factors of the comedy in this is that outside of maybe that scene where he goes over the edge in the tank, none of the comedy here lingers. It's usually one-liners. It's quick hitters. It's enough to make us giggle, and just like Indiana Jones, we are right back in the adventure. We're not going to stop the film, change the tone, and try to do a comedy bit. Um, It's just going to happen naturally in the flow of the action, and so it works out great. I think that him getting Hitler's autograph in the Grail Diary is a great piece of comedy that doubles as sort of a tense moment that you never know what's going to happen. The same kind of happens two other times. Once in the blimp, the no ticket line, the comedy is used to diffuse an otherwise really scary moment for him. And, or for us, with regards to watching what's going on with him, his dad shooting off the plane tail and slowly turning around and then lying about it and being like, they got a son. I, I like busted out laughing at that. A hundred percent busted out laughing because that is so realistic for that kind of relationship. Then you have just absolute hilarious physical comedy. When you have Henry and Marcus meeting in a tank under captivity of the Nazis and they do this secret handshake chicken dance, I was like, what is going on right now with these two old men? But this is absolutely adorable, and again, relationships, relationship building, and it shows you these – it just gives you these great insights to the way that the different characters have sarcasm or what they find funny, and it's moments of levity for the audience. It's just perfectly paced in this one. I had no issues with it at all, and I think that pretty much I, – I can't – immediately recall any jokes that I found to be eye-roll worthy, and that's not always the case. When it comes to Sulla and Brody meeting up, and Sulla says he's trying to get Brody to leave, and he keeps saying, ha, wonderful paper, yeah, run. That whole bit, like you mentioned, it progresses the story in different ways without lingering on the humor of it. It doesn't become self-aware. It seems like everything that happens that gives us a laugh doesn't feel like it stops the action or stops the scene for the sake of just being funny. It feels very natural. It feels like a, a breath, a beat that puts itself in a position where you can keep moving forward and not feel like you're distracted by the, the comedy. You can laugh with the characters. There's a great scene and it's not really a funny moment, but it's really more of a, Oh, that, that was cool. A little callback. In the catacombs, you got Indy and Elsa walking by and she goes, she runs across a, uh, a cave painting or a catacomb painting that she goes, what's this? And he says, the Ark of the Covenant. And she goes, are you sure? And he goes, pretty sure. Interestingly enough, if you listen to the music, then you hear a little callback to music from Raiders of the Lost Ark that just stays there for maybe three seconds. And then it goes back into, I guess you would call it the last crusade music, which I just think is fantastic. Just. That's a representation of what I feel like is a great 
use of moments. And for me, The Last Crusade's humor is a series of moments that allows us to just take a breath, enjoy the action, enjoy the drama. And that's really difficult, Aaron, to be able to balance that because we also get a good amount of drama. We get a good amount of emotional connection um, to one of the bigger themes in the movie, and that's this father-son thing. You know, The Last Crusade uh, represents what Donovan calls uncovering the greatest artifact in the history of mankind. And the thing is, for Indiana Jones, it's also about uncovering that lost relationship with his dad. From the very beginning, you mentioned we get this tension where he's trying to tell his dad, hey, hey, I've got this, I've got this, you know, the cross of Coronado, and he is just not even interested. And then later on, we finally get introduced to Sean Connery as his dad, which, by the way, is just great casting. I didn't know much about Sean Connery. I hadn't watched the early James Bond movies before this, and so I thought, is he really his dad? Are they related? Because of the chemistry that they have with each other. But while Spielberg, I think, is consistent in terms of giving us quality relationships with Indiana Jones, with Miriam, and then with Short Round, and now with his dad, I think this one establishes probably the most depth in the two hours that we have with these two characters. And I admit that this is a relationship like a father and son, but we mentioned on, on Dune that we love the relationship that he has with Short Round. But for me, it really works well. It works to to the degree that it elevates the movie. And I'm assuming it does for you. So why does it do that for you? Why does the subplot work so well and, and doesn't conflict with what's the overall narrative, which is the, uh, you know, the hunt for the Holy Grail? Are you saying the subplot of Indy and his father kind of reconnecting and fixing their relationship? Sort yeah, of? The, the, the B plot here of, of their relationship underneath the main plot of finding the Holy Grail. Why does that work so well in this instead of like conflicting? Well, I think for one, it works because they both have investment in the A plot. So it's never fully removed. They are both trying to find the grail for different reasons. But this is not a sort of situation where one character is trying to do something. And then on the side, he's trying to juggle a relationship that is out of place or not part of the main story. This is two characters intricately tied into the A plot that just happen to have their interactions slowly revealing bits of their relationship in the past and then helping to move it forward for the future in the process. Because these are two characters, it's really great writing, I guess, is at the bottom line of it. Two characters who have never really had anything else to bring them together, and now they are forced to be together. And so it's like a unavoidable therapy session for them, the entire journey to get to the grail. And so I think it works phenomenally. And it also gives Indiana, most importantly, some stakes that I don't think we have ever seen him have before. He doesn't want Marion to die, and so he's very aware of that at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. We've seen him protect Shorty, and we've seen him want to 
help and save other people, such as the villagers in Temple of Doom. But it's different when it's your dad. And, of course, that comes into play towards the end of the film in a big way to where Indiana Jones will do what Indiana Jones wants to do. And this is a scenario where he has to do something, whether he wants to do it or not. He has no choice whether he wants to believe in something or not. He has no choice. And I think that it plays in really well also because of the fact that his father has this faith based perspective into finding this particular relic. And he has a very psychological, philosophical perspective. There's a, a great part in the beginning. Hang on one second. Cause I have the note where he is in his professor classroom there for the first time. And he's explaining to his class what archaeology is. And he says, archaeology is the search for facts, not truth. We do not follow maps to bury treasure, and X never marks a spot. Of course, calling forward to the, the joke we'll get later. 70% of archaeology is done in the library through research, which I think is awesome. But his dad has a different level of belief in this artifact that they're chasing. And I think that it all runs perfectly together to make the chase to the artifact more exciting and interesting while simultaneously him having to deal with the fact that his father and he have these different perspectives and have this relationship that they have to fix in order to achieve said shared goal. Um, and so, so really, I guess I'm talking in circles to say what I said at the beginning, which is the fact that his father and he are both part of the A plot is what makes it able to work so well it's not something just on the side right and something you hinted at was their different approaches to archaeology this is something that's kind of common in other narratives i know it was common in the tv show lost where you have two characters who approach how life is done either through science or through faith and that's a fantastic conflict or in some ways a fantastic compliment and I think Spielberg is using that very effectively to walk us through what is the quest for the Holy Grail? Is it a quest based on faith or is it a quest based on science? Well, I think the answer is yes. At least that's what I think Spielberg is saying. And I think that we're challenged by saying who's right? Is it Indiana or is it Henry? And the answer is yes. How you have these two approaches, you have these swashbuckling adventurer who lives by fact and you have this reserved um, philosopher who lives sort of by faith or at least by thought. I don't know if it's necessarily by faith. I think it's by faith. He uh, mentions a lot of hundred percent by faith when he slaps him because oh, yeah, he says for, JC, he says he goes off. He says that's for blasphemy. He says the quest for the grail is not archaeology. It's a race against evil. If it is captured by the Nazis, the armies of darkness will march all over the face of the earth. Do you understand me? Like his dad is not in it for the artifact purposes. Right. You know, he's, he's in, in it to save the world. He's the, he's the fourth knight. I mean, he is in a lot of ways. He is that he's that guy. Who Wasn't was he in that to... movie called the first night or something though? I think he was. <laughs> there's some, there's some weird thing there, but it creates a fantastic conflict and compliment at the same time. And I think that when Spielberg puts that together, along with great writing and great jokes, 
and a father son dynamic as opposed to two brothers or just partners. It elevates that because men can relate to a relationship with their father and a relationship with their son and the way in which your father did things differently than you do and the way your son does things differently than you do. So it's a brilliant way to look at taking this concept and putting it in the hands of a father son dynamic because it's both relatable even if you're not a religious person, even if you're not a scientific person, maybe you're a blend of both. At some point, as an audience, we can relate to Henry. And at some point, as an audience, we can relate to Indy because of specific moments. There's a fantastic, humorous moment where Indy comes in, breaks through the window, and he gets hit on the head with that fake vase. And it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. And he goes, Dad, and he goes, Junior, you know, and it starts this whole dialogue and he goes, he goes, oh, I've, you know, I'm sorry. Or he does something and he goes, I'm OK. When in reality, Henry's upset because he broke the vase, not because he smashed it on his son's head, because he realizes it's a fake. Seeing Indiana's facial expression like nothing has changed after all these years, getting that kind of relationship established, even as adults is something that I think helps pay off in the end their resolution as father and son, as archaeologists who differ in their approaches. And it allows us to get to know both of them and really kind of root for both of them in their own right to say, you're both approaching this the right way. By working together, I think you've actually accomplished something that you couldn't do on your own. Oh, I completely agree. And I think that it ties back to that quote that I said earlier from him in the classroom where he is telling his class 70% of archaeology takes place in the library doing research. That is somewhere he and his father completely agree. His father has taken it to an obsessive level with one specific artifact. But if it was not for him doing that, we wouldn't have the Grail Diary. And let me tell you, Patrick, the Grail Diary this time around specifically is one of the things that I think is an all-time great design part of this genre that has carried forward. Nathan Drake, his entire adventures revolve around a diary he uses to take notes in, to jot down how to solve puzzles, to carry pictures and character profiles and all sorts of good stuff. That's This is the beginning of that, the Grail Diary right here. And that comes from what? Doing research in the library, studying, not always being out trying to find a relic necessarily. And so they do agree in that. And it's a piece of common ground that ultimately they both end up having to use. It's part of, you know, the chase early on, but once they get it and trying to keep it and realizing they have to use it, they both understand the importance of having something like that. And for me as an audience member, I just eat it up. I think the grail diary is super cool. And it's really fascinating to me, and I think it elevates so many of the archaeological sequences where we have to beat traps and stuff at the end of the movie, because it's no longer a matter of just kind of feeling around aimlessly for something on the wall and clicking it, and you got lucky and the spike stopped coming down. They are very specific figure. It shows intelligence. And it shows having done your homework and because you have to figure them out, right? 
uh, you have to determine what the actual solution is. You have to read and process and not get lucky. Um, and so I think that that is a lot different than what we have seen in other parts of these films uh, as a whole. And so for me, it makes him getting through obstacles like that a lot more satisfying. It's what makes that scene right at the crossroad where they're trying to decide where to go, either towards the map or towards the diary that helps create and really verbalize that conflict. Because Henry says there's more to the diary than just the map. And we don't know that. We find out later what you mentioned, the puzzles and the solutions and whatnot. But in that moment, Indiana is realizing that archaeology, and specifically this artifact, needs more than just a treasure map. You don't need to just know where it is. You need to know how to get it. Because you're right. Up till then, all of his adventures have been either just stealing something or making sure that he doesn't accidentally press the wrong button. He has no insight into how to do stuff. He's just winging it at that point, using his whip, using his fists, using his gun to try to get these things and hopefully not get killed in the process. Whereas Henry and all the research that he's done over the years is in a place where he can say, we need both. Okay. These guys will probably get to the grail, but as you find out, <laughs> they're just sending these, um, I don't know what the, what the uh, nationality is of these sheep to slaughter when they get to the cave. They're volunteers. Volunteers. Donovan does this twice, and I, it's what makes him one of my favorite villains, is he calls them volunteers. He does it also, uh, there's a moment with the king of whatever country they're in, I don't know that I took note of it, and he's bringing out this chest of gold, and he says something to the effect of, here is all of this incredible treasure that was donated by some of the wealthiest families in Germany. That crap is not donated, Patrick. That crap is stolen. Like, yep. 100%. That is stolen off of probably dead people. Yep. Um, and his, he's a spinster. You know, he's a talker. He's a used car salesman, man. He is a used car. They, literally, <laughs> that's a great, because, like, that's what the guy takes is the car. And they um, even like the color. <laughs> and, yeah, I know. And, and the fact that that guy, the king, would sell his entire everything, like, and even give away tanks for a car. I thought there was some great little bits of early social commentary, essentially, in this movie that, that I'd never really paid attention to before, thinking about the fact that here's this nation in Arabia that could be, you know, housing and holding this incredible artifact of maybe power, but definitely of renown. And, um, and yet he would trade it all for a car selfishly for himself, nothing even for his people, but because it was a status symbol. Mm -hmm. Like that was what was more important than, and he'd give up some tanks and some troops just to get it. Like, Oh, that kind of hurt me a little bit. Well, and Donovan doesn't even pull any punches. He tells him what he's looking for. He's saying, Hey, this artifact. And I don't know if he calls it an artifact. He doesn't call it a source of power. Pretty sure he says the grail. Like he tells him straight up, the Holy grail is in your borders. And we just wanted to ask you first. We wanted to be respectful, but he straight up tells him it's there. And the guy's like, doesn't even blink. He's like, Oh, okay. Well, what are you going to give me? Yeah. And I think he understands the culture enough. Just like I think he understands Indiana Jones and what he's about to get into when he first meets him to say, Hey, take my advice. Don't trust anyone. 
and later on that comes back to bite him where he says, because he didn't take my advice. He didn't trust, you know, he trusted you or whatnot. I think that Donovan represents a really great foil for Indy in the same way that Belloc did in Raiders. Although I think Belloc is more of my favorite in terms of cross comparing uh, him and Indy because he's an archaeologist only in a different kind of way. But I think that Donovan is a great antagonist in his own right because of those things that we've mentioned, that he is capable of manipulating. He's capable of doing things in order to get his way that feel like he's actually benefiting other people. That whole conversation inside the uh, bedroom or the the living room thing where he's showing him the tablet. I mean, he's setting it up to be like, wow, Donovan's a he's an ally, you know, and it's and it ends with him saying your father is the one who's gone missing. We I mean, we have no idea that he's, quote, a bad guy at that point. And you know what, Aaron? I don't know that he is. I think that he has a motive that we as an audience can probably relate to, that he's a guy who he says the Germans see the grail as a source of power, maybe, and or, or they see it as a place to write their name in history. Well, let them have that. But the grail is about eternal life. It's what I want. Now, granted, his motives and what he ends up wanting to do, you know, having this all-powerful thing are obviously bad. But do you think his motives are justified for for who he is in terms of what he's actually trying to gain from the Grail? No. No, not at all. He's very selfishly wanting power and to live forever. And we see nothing but a disregard for other human life. And I don't want somebody like that living forever with this power. So I would definitely say no. I would say that if what you're getting at is that he also does have what he specifically says, like yourself, Dr. Jones, I have a passion for antiquities. I respect that. I love that scene, by the way, where he's kind of had his men pick up Indiana and brings him to that room. And he's, showing him all of these artifacts. It's fascinating to me because you see him in a room, in a room like that where these scrolls, it makes me believe that all of this exists. It really does. And and it's so believable, Patrick. These are not like mystical. And I know some people would probably argue with us and say, Oh, they're very mystical and they're, you know, not real, but like the Dead Sea Scrolls are real and it, these are just something like that on this stone tablet and it just happens to lead to this artifact. I believe it. I buy it. And I, and those at that moment, I buy his passion. It's just the fact that, you know, as we progress through the film, he very clearly is willing to sacrifice anybody and everybody to get what he wants. He is, I think, in the sense of a used car salesman, I think he is a used car salesman on himself. And what I was getting at is that I think he feels like his motives are, when I say justified, what I mean is in his mind justified. He feels like this is something that deserves to be gained. That grail doesn't need to be hidden away. It needs to be, it's the cup that gives eternal life. And I think he's thinking who doesn't want to live forever but what he brings from that is a sense of, oh, great, if I live forever, I can have the power. What we find out, though, is that once you drink 
even if he drank the, from the right cup, he couldn't leave. Like he would live eternally only until he left the cave and then it would wear off. From what I understand, I think the, that's what the knight says that, that eternal life is only applicable if you stay in the cave, which could be a whole conversation in and of itself that do you want to live forever under that kind of situation or, or what? I got all kinds of thoughts about that whole ending sequence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, feel free to, when we get to that point, feel free to, to spill them because it's a, I mean, there's a lot going on there, but you're right. I think Donovan is definitely evil, but not necessarily in a flat way like the Germans or specifically the Nazis. And let me just kind of segue into the Nazis. We're using the Nazis again. This is definitely something that Spielberg is, is a fan of, at least in two of the three. Um, I kind of wish he would have used it in Temple of Doom. So we're like, hey, well, let's just let's just use Nazis in all of these. I, I, I wonder why or if you think the Nazis in general have been overused as movie villains uh, particularly in this trilogy. I mean, they're used quite a bit in other movies, but do you feel like they're kind of the scapegoat for for the narrative that Spielberg and, and Lucas are telling? No, I don't. And there are a couple of reasons for that. I totally get why people would say, oh, Nazi overload. But here's the thing. Hitler's Germany committed the worst atrocities that this world has ever seen. From a human perspective. Arguably. And. So to me. It's perfectly fine to continue to go back to that well. And be like you know what. We're never going to forget. That this regime. Was the worst ever. Of all time periods. I mean it's kind of. Hard to want to avoid that. Especially when we're still living in a period. Where people were alive. During that time. We have not moved on. This is not, you know, 200 years in the future where Hitler's now 300 years in the past and other major things have happened that they may want to point to or go back to the well on. The other reason, I think, is because of the setting. So Indiana Jones is living in a time period when the Nazis exist. Well, the Nazis are the thing that would be going after these artifacts. Like That's the world that exists for Indiana Jones. And so I think it's just realistic to believe that it would be Nazis. I like the way that they're used in this film, frankly. I like that he's had multiple run-ins with them because I think it gives a consistent growth of a villain for him. Uh, Sort of like a personification of things that he is against, uh, ideal-wise, morally-wise. And I think that it just they're not overused in a way in this film like i think they're more kind of on the nose you see a lot more of them troops and such in raiders of the lost ark and they're more of a background presence that just is sort of being manipulated or used by donovan uh at this point and so i I really liked it actually it didn't bother me one bit i didn't mind it either what i think is that when you have movies that together feel like a a series which is what this is obviously going back to the nazis i think i would like to see them always be used in not just in two out of the three or only used once but showing the different adventures so you mentioned that he was living in nazi germany at the time you know during this time period well not during not during temple of doom 
because this was obviously before Raiders and before the last crusade. So it would make sense to me if you're going to make a movie and this is not a mistake necessarily. I would just say if it's me and I'm a director and I'm going to catalog the adventures of this character, I'm going to put him in different time periods where maybe it's Nazi Germany. Maybe it's, um, a crazy, like devil cult of some kind, like in temple of doom. And then the third movie is maybe some other, some other group. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what that is. I don't, but for the purpose of this narrative, I thought it worked fine. I think you have a a great use of Nazi Germany as a background, not as the prominent force where Donovan, again, that used car salesman is using them to his own personal gain. And I think that amplifies him as a villain because it shows that he can convince anybody, anybody to do his bidding, including who I think is probably one of the more interesting characters outside of Indy and his dad. And that's Elsa. Elsa, who plays, you know, who's Dr. Schneider with a great, I guess, German accent. Or is it, is it German? I guess. I'm assuming it is. Is it? Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> so, I keep wanting to call it Elphaba and not Elsa. <laughs> yeah. I think this episode is actually going to release right the week of Frozen. It actually might actually be coming out like on a Tuesday or Thursday that Frozen 2 is actually releasing, which is hilarious oh. to me. That is it's fair. coming out really close to Frozen 2. Sorry. I, I didn't think about that tie-in at all when I was watching the movie, thankfully. But now I'm unable to see Elsa in The Last Crusade without ice powers. Well, I think that she should have let it go when it came to the, the actual grail. Otherwise, she'd probably still be with us. Um, wow, that was good. That, was, that's, <laughs> that being said, what did you think of her character? Is she evil? Does... Do you sympathize with with her motives, or is she just like Donovan, a a Nazi in sheep's clothing, or a villain in sheep's clothing? I guess you could say. I don't think she's evil. I don't think her heart is necessarily evil, and I love that about her, and that's part of what makes her to me the best girl in the series, or my favorite of the women, because she's complex. She is no doubt the prettiest, in my opinion, that's going to be subjective based on the viewer, but I find her incredibly attractive. Uh, she's the smartest, I think. She really knows her history. She literally is a doctor. She is conniving, which I find incredibly sexy, and is a little bit along the lines. She reminds me of a Bond girl in a lot of ways, a girl that Bond would interact with, that it's like a double agent of some sort. She may be bad, but she clearly has a heart. She cries when she sees the books burning. So even though she's kind of going along with this regime, uh, which is, you know, acceptance is, I guess, you're joining the cause in some manner, but she clearly has reservations about the choices of Hitler's uh, plans that are going on. And she also... She genuinely has interest in Indiana. Their love scene to me is the exact opposite of the one we see in Temple of Doom and how ridiculous it is. It is equally as stupid, you might say, the way that they forcefully are kissing each other and it's just kind of nonsensical and they're talking smack about each other and saying how much they hate it while they're also doing it. But it's a lot quicker and it just shows a ton of chemistry between the two of them. And I really like that. And I think, you know, towards the end, she genuinely 
wants to bring the grail out and use it for good. I think that that's probably her goal. I, I think that more so than Donovan was. I mean, I don't believe that Elsa's desire is to rule the world through the grail. She has a little bit different motives. They're still selfish, but they're not evil, in my opinion. And so yeah. that's why I like her. Yeah, I, I I agree with most of that. I think her wanting to take the the Grail was summed up nicely by Henry, where he said she saw the Grail as a prize, something to be to be won, as opposed to an artifact or something to be protected. And in the end, it became the it it led to her death because it became an obsession for her, something that she felt like would give her worth. It would be a an exclamation point on her life. I mean, she. I'm trying to figure out. She was a. She's a doctor. What is she a doctor? Is she a doctor of archaeology? I don't know. Anyway, but she has that same kind of motive that Indiana does, and in that she wants to discover. She wants to. She gets really excited about the discoveries that are being made, even if they lead to ultimately Donovan manipulating it. But. I love what you mentioned in that she is very, very strong. She's very strong willed. She's very self, uh, she's very capable of what she does. I love the fact that she's completely, she doesn't even hesitate when she says, lower me down. And she's walking through the rat infested catacombs with, uh, with Indy. There's nothing about her that is the same as let's say Willie Scott who doesn't want to touch any of this stuff where she's like, I'm going to wade in all this oil drenched water and discover this stuff when, with you, Indy. Cause you know, you might be as giddy as a schoolboy, but I'm coming alongside like a schoolgirl that's incredibly excited about this too. So I think you're right. I think she and Indy are more same than they are different, but I think in the end they're both challenged with the same kind of desire and and she makes the choice that leads ultimately to her demise, which is seeing the cup as something to be won instead of something to be um, cherished or protected or that's really meant to just stay where it is. And that kind of leads to the ending, which I think is, is pretty phenomenal. Um, we have a series of tests that call back to a little bit of what we see in Temple of Doom, which is why I think going back to what you mentioned earlier, why this works so well is Spielberg is like, Hey, let's include some puzzles here, but let's include puzzles that have some thought behind them and seeing the dynamic between Indiana and Henry, where he's trying to walk through and kind of relive what he learned as a young boy and hearing Henry saying, you know, the pentadent man, pentadent man. And then just, uh, the tension there is is so good. We're celebrating and we're we're walking carefully with Indiana as he goes through these different things. I think it's probably one of the best, I guess, climaxes of an action adventure movie that that I can remember seeing because it's got those really really cool moments. It mixes action and adventure with some not necessarily comedy, uh, but that drama that we that we're we're loving that relationship between Indy and his dad and it ends up leading to this moment with this knight who who is so old that he can barely hold his sword up and he goes you have vanquished me 
and it's so dramatic and, and he goes, I'm not here for that. I need to get to the, to the cup. So there's that small little humorous moment. Were there any parts in particular that you connected with about that whole sequence? Well, yeah, I mean, I just adore it as well. I think that it is definitely the best climax uh, for my money. Like I said earlier about going through the tomb, I agree with you. The joint solving of the puzzles, even from different places, while Indy's walking through trying to figure it out and his dad is talking through the different things along with him, even though he doesn't know that, I did connect with that. I thought that that was really moving and just showed that we've gotten to a place where they are now in lockstep. They have the same, uh, this, this ability to put these puzzles together, solve these clues and find these things and that they're going to do that. And so it's almost like his dad is right there with him. That's the sense that we get, which of course is perfect because he's doing this for his dad. He's pushed into this now to save his dad. And that's one of the reasons I really like Donovan is because Donovan is, sly he is very very smart and when he says and he tells him shooting me won't get you anywhere he's like yeah i know bang there's no hesitation he shoots his dad and now there's stakes it's real and i enjoy that i think that it pushes indy into that place of faith which is something that marcus actually says to him earlier on in the film, film, he tells him um, something to the effect of he says, but my age, Indy, I'm prepared to take a few things on faith. Like he's gotten to this point in his life where you you kind of are starting to get closer to the other side and it becomes more apparent that you need to think about these things. And Indy is in that same situation, right? He is pursuing this thing. He doesn't necessarily know the answers, and at some point he's going to have to have some faith. And I love it. I love the way the puzzles are solved, Patrick. They tie in to the theme of what he is going to get. They're not random. They're intentional. The first thing he has to do is kneel before the king, essentially. The second puzzle is the literal name of God himself. The third is a literal leap of faith. These all are perfectly aligned with the concept of finding the Holy Grail and what it was to me. So they're not just arbitrarily designed cool puzzles with spikes coming out of the ground that you have to avoid by putting in some random number sequence that you find on the walls. You know what I mean? They're intentional. And I just that meant so much to me. The only sort of out of place thing for me is the night. And when we get to the night, I can't help but go, what? So it's a cool story that he tells. You know, there's these three brothers who've been guarding the grail. It's weird to me that he speaks English. If he's been down here for uh, however many hundreds of years. He's got Wi-Fi and Google, so he knows. I immediately start thinking about like how he sustained life. Down here, without food, without water. I'm Holy guessing, water. guessing it's water. the grail. I I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, I guess it's an endless supply of water down there that you drink out of the grail. I, I mean, I know, I know, I know. This is not the time to, to start worrying about the specifics of the situation. 
but it does come upon you a little bit out of nowhere when everything else has felt very grounded and all of a sudden there's this knight. Part of me thinks he's an angel and he's just there as a placeholder. Essentially, God has placed him there. Um, so I don't know what's up with the knight. It definitely is enjoyable to watch, but it's a little bit inconsistent for me, I think, with the way that the rest of that whole adventure has gone. Either way, it plays out great, and I love seeing Donovan trust Elsa to pick the right cup for him. I wondered what you thought about this. Do you think that Elsa is choosing the cup that she thinks is correct, or do you think Elsa is choosing the cup that she knows is to be wrong? I think it's the latter. Okay. Because she's smart. She is. And I think, again, she was probably challenged. I look at her choice that she makes for Donovan, and I think it is the culmination of everything that she's been challenged with that we've seen as an audience where her loyalties have been questioned. Is she part of this Nazi party? Is she with Donovan? Is she with Indy? And I think she feels like she's aligning herself with, quote, the right people by essentially allowing Donovan to choose the wrong one. But again, her motives are still unchanged at the heart of where she's at. She still sees the grail as a prize, but she's trying to eliminate one lesser evil for the sake of of gaining this thing. She's still selfish. Ultimately, I think she wants to share this with Indiana, but for the wrong reason. She even says, come on, Indy, we've got it. We've got it before the whole you know, cave starts caving in. But no, I absolutely think that that is a moment of reflection and decision for her where she could choose to, uh, to take out Donovan or to let him go on because I think she knows that, he, that he's probably going to kill her because she's just collateral damage to him at that point. Yep. I will, I will say this. Um, I agree. I don't know that the knight's necessarily needed in this scene. I think you could have the, the grail room, the cup room, whatever you want to call that without him. At the very least, I think what he adds is a great callback to the Diet Coke commercial that we saw back in the 90s where he was used for that. That's the only reason I remember him is because of the Diet Coke commercial and the tie into that. You have chosen wisely, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. He has given us one of the greatest like memes of all time, the choose chosen wisely and chosen poorly thing. Yeah. It's fantastic. And so for that regard, you know, I let it go. <laughs> I love the effects, too, by the way, of Donovan. I like that it's not instantaneous. I like that he kind of decays and grows old in real time. It's a cool practical effects that are taking place there. And I just kind of like the idea of ashes to ashes, dust to dust taking place right there before them. Um, and I like that there are rules. You mentioned it earlier that the cup can't go outside of this boundary. It kind of throws everybody for a loop. Because that's not something they're aware of. Yeah. And it gives it a whole new level of intrigue to me because I think, what would you do with the cup, right? Like what, what, what's the ultimate possibility of this cup if it gets out? You can't put it in a museum. It's never going to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this builds into the story a way to take care of that. 
so that the characters aren't forced to come up with some solution that never was going to work anyway. Right. As they leave the temple, Henry says that he's found illumination. What do you think that means, Aaron? Because it's not really explained. What, what are your thoughts on that? I definitely think it ties into our connecting point. So okay. there's that. Okay. Do we want to just transition or do you want to... That sounds good. So we'll, we'll lead into that because I, I would agree. I think that, that, um, <laughs> as we do transition into our connecting point uh, awkwardly. <laughs> Sorry. I just didn't want to say it twice. That's cool. The scene that, that stands out to me is just after Elsa lets herself go or is lost to the, uh, selfishness of wanting to get the, the grail. Indiana essentially replaces her by almost falling down off this cliff that's been created. And he's looking at the grail and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so close. And he says, I can reach it, I think. But then all of a sudden in a quiet voice, he hears his dad say, Indiana, Indiana, let it go. And that's not a callback. Or call forward to Frozen. Um, it is an actual sincere line that I think says so much. The fact that Henry calls him Indiana is significant. That he's not calling him Junior or Boy. I think he's recognizing the fact that he's talking to an individual. He's talking to a man. Yes, it's his son. But by acknowledging that this is who he is. He is Indiana Jones. This is who he has created himself to be, who he has identified himself as. This is his identity. By, by calling him that, he's saying, I respect you and I love you and I admire you as a man, but I'm asking you to release that. This isn't about fortune and glory. This isn't about anything that you think is valuable. You need to realize that there's a lot more at stake here than just getting an artifact. And I think Henry knows the power that the Grail has, as he mentioned with Elsa. And I think what he's doing in this moment is what he sees as illumination. And that's a restoration with his son, a, re a restored relationship with his son, a renewed sense of understanding his son, just like a renewed sense of Indiana understanding him. I think their resolution as a father and son is what has helped him understand what archaeology is and what it means to discover something beyond just the faith aspect of it, that he can respect and honor and value how Indiana approaches his life in general, but specifically his craft. And I think it's one of those moments, Aaron, where you have a parent who validates what you're doing as a human being. So for instance, if my dad didn't agree with me going overseas on a mission trip because I was young and I was going to be alone, but eventually comes around to it because he sees the inherent spiritual value of it. And he respects me for that, which by the way is a true story. First time I went overseas by myself, I had, the 
conflict with my dad, which was incredibly surprising. I thought he'd be the one that would be the one supporting me and championing me, but he was the one that said, no, I can't agree with this. Eventually he came around and in the end he champions any trip that I can take overseas, whether it's by myself or with another group. And I think that's the same thing that we get here with Henry. He says to Indiana, I get it. I get who you are. And I, I don't want to lose that now for the sake of this artifact that I know is deeply valued. I've deeply valued it. I've spent most of my life uncovering the secrets of it, possibly to find it. But the fact is my relationship with you, that's the treasure that I want to hold on to. And I think that's what he finds in his illumination. Wow. Well, that's incredibly well said. And I'm not going to say a whole lot more because I can't make that much better. I agree wholeheartedly. And that's why it was my connecting point too. It's definitely related to him deciding that his relationship with his son is more important than his obsessions. And I think that he knows that by affirming his son, which I think is what you're getting at, by making that choice, he gives his son and he sets an example for his son to emulate um, in his own life. And I love it because I think that it ties in really well to, to the over the side of the mountain scene where he genuinely believes Indiana has died and it's a slow realization, but you really start to see it on his face as he's concerned and beginning to worry that he, maybe he's not coming back and he's like, I just need five minutes. I just needed five minutes. And this is an opportunity for him to ensure that he's going to get that. And I think that it is a beautiful, beautiful moment because of their bickering the entire film. Um, and it is paid off through slow, but sure moments in the film where they are getting closer and closer to this. And it's not done in a way that is abrupt and kind of unexpected or out of character. And I, I think it's, it's beautiful. It's short, but sweet. And I'll, I'll leave it at that because it could have been a long piece of exposition and it's not. And that's what makes it so awesome because it's a real life scenario. You have seconds to convince him to reach that hand up and let it go. And he tells him exactly what he needs to hear. And that's all that matters. Um, and for a father and son, you know, as we can relate to, like you just said with your story, that's a powerful thing. Yeah. And it's a great fitting into a fantastic trilogy that um, I think will go down as one of the one of the great ones for me personally. You are named after the dog. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I had totally forgotten Salah was in this movie. And then when he says that at the end, it is awesome. And they literally, the four of them on horseback ride right off, off into, into the, the sunset. sunset. Yeah. It is, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, Spielberg is amazing. <laughs> and I love that it's led by Brody who almost falls off of his horse. <laughs> Dude, Marcus is so good. We didn't talk about it when we were doing that 
that uh, humor piece earlier. We were discussing that. But that is also one of the funniest moments of the entire film is when Donovan's talking about how Marcus would get lost in a museum or whatever. And then he's like, the hell you will find him. He's got a two day head start on you, which is more than he needs. Brody's got friends in every town and village from here to the Sudan. He speaks a dozen languages and knows every local custom. He'll blend in, disappear, and you'll never see him again. With any luck, he's got the grail already. And we cut to Marcus <laughs> And he's like, Does anybody speak English? It's <laughs> so good. It's, it's so, good. so good. Anyway. Yeah, it's it's great comedy. It's perfect. Um, <laughs> Mr. Brody. And then you have Sala come in. It's it's great. I think those guys, such a great use of those two characters. And I'm glad they came back. Well, that wraps up this official celebration of our 200th episode. We have certainly enjoyed talking through this series and hope that you have enjoyed listening. If you aren't tired of us just yet, keep your podcatcher catching because up next we have our monthly donor pick coming at you as well as our conversation on Knives Out with Colby Mack coming just a few days later. Aaron, I had a blast, my friend. This was really a lot of fun. Me too. Good choice. Thanks for another great conversation and, uh, and we'll talk soon. Hey everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.